In today's episode of Speaking Out of Place, we talk with Olivia Harrison, author of a new book entitled Natives Against Nativism, which takes on the appropriation of the figure of the native, or in the French case, the indigène, to serve progressive and indeed revolutionary causes, but also its appropriation by the alt-right, both in France and internationally, to drive a reactionary program against so-called anti-white racism. Our conversation covers a lot of ground, from a discussion of the basic premises of the French Republic, to unpacking the long history of anti-racist struggles in France, to the period of the late 60s and 70s, where we see in particular the figure of the Palestinian and of the American Indian play enormous roles in the racial imaginary. We then turn to the ways that things like the Great Replacement theory signal a convergence of U.S. and French nativism, and use photographs, films, and poetry to show the complexity of this terrain, perhaps best illustrated by the collaboration between French avant-garde filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard and the preeminent Palestinian poet Mahmoud Dawish. Olivia C. Harrison is Associate Professor of French and Comparative Literature at the University of Southern California. Her research focuses on post-colonial North African, Middle Eastern, and French literature and film, with a particular emphasis on trans-colonial affiliations between writers and intellectuals from the Global South. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with The Creative Process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Olivia, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I have to say that your book is absolutely perfectly titled. It's a short title, but it says everything about the book. So could you tell us about Natives Against Nativism? Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So the full title is Natives Against Nativism, Anti-Racism and Indigenous Critique in Postcolonial France. There are a lot of key terms in there, which actually might not be that evident, especially to American audiences. It's really a book about anti-racism in France and a kind of different genealogy of grassroots anti-racism in France, starting with the movement for migrant rights in the 1970s and then all the way up to the current grassroots protests that are happening in the streets of French cities. Part of what I wanted to do in this book was tell that story from a non-institutional perspective beginning with the immediate post-colonial period. So thinking of the French Empire after 1962, when Algeria becomes independent from France, and the period of large-scale immigration in the post-war era. Because most studies of anti-racism in France have really focused on NGOs and civil society, and less so on the people who were themselves mobilizing against their own racialization. I should say also that the book actually began as a book about the Palestinian question in France and the ways Mm -hmm. in which the Palestinian question intersected with anti-racist. So the ways in which anti-racist struggle was internationalist, to use a term from Mm -hmm. the 60s, a term from a previous period, specifically looking to Palestine really as an example of resistance in the post-colonial period. And in a way, as I was doing my research on, for example, the Palestine committees in the 1970s, or the writings of the French writer who wrote a lot about Palestine, about the Black Panthers, he was also mobilizing, by the way, with migrants in the 1970s as well. That's much less well-known about his work. Mm -hmm. Then working also on Jean-Luc Godard's films where the Palestinian question comes up at several important junctures, both in the pro-Palestinian revolution moment in the 70s, but then in his later work like Our Music as well from 2005. As I was spending time in this archive, it occurred to me that there was something going on really with thinking through the legacies of colonialism in this period. And that's something that falls out of view when we think about anti-racism as, for example, plea for diversity, right, or thinking about multiculturalism and so forth. That's really the kind of top-down way of understanding Mm -hmm. anti-racism 
I think, and in the French context, it's also been very much been a conversation about fascism specifically and about the legacies of fascism in Europe. So there's a lot going on already yeah, as I'm trying yeah. to unpack my title, but I was really trying to hone in on what was happening specifically within migrant circles and then, of course, several generations down the line within post-migrant circles. That's a term that's used, I believe, in Germany to talk about the second, third, and so forth generation, because in fact, so-called diversity in France is very much the result mm -hmm. of French empire and the, the population transfers that happened during the colonial period and afterwards, even though it's not simply reduced to that. So what became apparent was that, first of all, I would have to contend with the idea of indigeneity, the colonial production of the indigène in the French context, and then also thinking about that in the context of the post-colonial emergence of what in mm -hmm. English we would call mm -hmm. nativism. Interestingly, that's not really a term that's used in French, even though we could easily t use it. It's a Latin right. term. We could say nativisme, but we don't really use that term. But really specifically, anti-immigrant racism and understandings of Frenchness and French national identity that I started to see were actually a response to decolonization in a certain mm -hmm. kind of sense. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I'm trying to contend with is the colonial genealogies of anti-immigrant discourse and the colonial genealogies of nativism. And so part of that is tracing this arc from the production of the figure of the indigène, the native, to the post-colonial production of nativism as we understand it today. So natives against nativism, that's the larger frame, right? So thinking about the emergence of grassroots anti-racism, the emergence of the migrant rights movement after decolonization in post-colonial France within this very hostile climate of increasing anti-immigrant sentiment across the right and left mm -hmm. of this. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You mentioned at the start of your comments about clarifying things for the U.S. audience. And I think one of the key terms that would really help if you unpacked it is the idea of the French Republic. Could, yeah. could you talk a little bit about that and fit that in with the indigene? So that's a huge topic. And actually, there's been a lot of really good work on that. I mean, I think of Joan Scott, Mayanthi Fernando, sociologists, anthropologists who've really unpacked and critiqued mm -hmm. the idea of the French Republic. I'm trying to think of how I would articulate this in terms of thinking about anti-racism specifically, right. because mm -hmm. part of what I'm trying to also distinguish is between anti-racism as a form of critique, mm -hmm. let's call it indigenous critique if we want to use that term, but anti-racism as a form of critique and sort of the idea of diversity or multiculturalism right. or celebration of pluralism and so on and so mm -hmm. forth, which is actually very compatible in a way with French universalism, because the idea of the Republic is meant to be Republic for all, regardless of race, class, gender, etc. We have these terms in the Constitution, although the term race has been taken out or it was proposed to be taken out recently, right. but it truly is meant to be universal, right? So that's the revolutionary idea that we have since 1789 and the fall of the old regime, the fall of the monarchy, is that it's going to be democratic nation-state for all of its citizens. Obviously, women were not voting until 1945. Obviously, mm -hmm. France was a colonial slaveholding state. So we know the limits of Republican universalism, but that remains, I think, the foundational value. The, the slogan of the Republic, uh, liberté, égalité, fraternité, freedom, equality, fraternity, you know, in schools and so forth. And so it's very centralized state. And so we have a very centralized mm -hmm. idea right. of national identity. Of course, every nation state has its own kind of foundational myths, but it's a particularly important one. And just to kick on one of those terms, the term equality, which is obviously foundational. That term was, in fact, one of the kind of emancipatory terms that was really picked up by the so-called second generation of the 1980s, known as the Beur generation, Beur, B-E-U. You are, so, which is reverse slang Arab. And it's a term that's controversial in France, but it was a term that was used within those communities and then got picked up by the media and further ethnicized and so on and so forth. You could see it as a kind of reappropriation of a racial slur in a certain kind of sense. So the so-called Belle generation in the early 1980s, when they started to really become political militants around that time, 
And the urban rebellions of 1981, 1982, around the Lyon area specifically, they called for a march. There were just a few dozen of them when they started mm. out in Marseille in October of 1983. So we're coming up on the 40-year anniversary. They arrived in Paris with a million-person march after three months walking through France. And the name of that march was the mm. March for mm. Equality and Against Racism. And that's really important because that term was taken out because it became called the March mm, oh, of wow. the Arabs. It became ethnicized, racialized in this exactly. way, when in fact it was called the March for Equality and Against mm -hmm. Racism. How interesting. And wow. yeah, and so that's a perfect kind of example in a way of the ways in which these integral values of the Republic for equality right, become erased under this sort of ethnicized kind of media ring around where then it becomes all about these puns around beurre, which is also how you say butter in French, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like so right, petit beurre right. is like a butter uh -huh. cookie. And there are all these kind of language games, which actually people, as I said, it's not like the media invented those language games. Mm -hmm. It becomes reduced to culture, right? To right. cultural difference, actually. And so that was a point of contention already at the time in the 1980s was that equality was being turned into difference. Mm, yeah. Okay. And so yeah. one of the slogans of that march, for example, was the right to difference. Even within the kind of Republican ideals, the Declaration mm. of the Rights of Men and Citizens, citizens. Mm -hmm. women came later. That is a document that, like our founding liberal documents, protects the rights to, for example, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, the right to difference, right? So the right to difference itself is, of course, it's a liberal right that, mm. that everyone can be on board with, but it was turned into this kind of diversification, celebration of diversity and difference mm. for its own sake, almost as entertainment. And so you have basically a depoliticization of the struggles, which were struggles around equality. So it's mm -hmm. just one example to unpack a little bit, maybe yes. those tensions in the idea of the Republic. But of course, you know, what Mayanthi Fernando and John Scott talk about is the fact that in a way, the understanding of that founding myth is so rigid that it also, in fact, yeah. disables the possibility for being exactly. different within that. So the, I would say yeah. there's a tension between those things. I'm personally interested, in fact, the impossibility for certain groups of people to be mm -hmm. included within right. those notions, right? But it's not even about inclusion. It's simply about the term itself. What does exactly. equality mean? What does yeah. equality of citizenship mean? And when you bring in the case of the Palestinians and the American Indians, that puts the pressure on those terms that fragments the atmospheric and brings it down into questions of land and actual rights, not to be different, but actual political rights. Yeah. So this is pushing the conversation a little bit further, because one of the things that I'm interested in is those politics of solidarity and alliance, the struggles that are actually mm -hmm. not the same. And I know this podcast is called Speaking Out of Place, and that's the title of your book also. And so I've been thinking also about that notion of speaking out of place or being out of place or what is appropriate or not, right? We mm -hmm. talk about appropriation. Mm -hmm. And I think this is maybe also a place where I go back to the anti-colonial moment in a Fanonian understanding, right, of decolonization as a process. So mm -hmm. if we go back to the period of the 50s, the 60s, the kind of heyday of third worldism and, and decolonization, mm -hmm. there was a lot of thinking out of place. There was a lot of kind of appropriation, right? There was, yeah, exactly. there was a lot of identification. I use the term transcolonial identification mm -hmm. or to use Jacques Rancière's term, what does it mean to adopt the cause of the other? Mm -hmm. It's not my cause. I'm not, in fact, right now colonized, for example, I'm not saying me, but the activists that I'm looking at, so say Moroccans, Algerians, Tunisians, who are now the citizens of sovereign nation states who either already came to France as immigrants, I should say, as colonial recruits to the economy right yes. before decolonization yes. or afterwards. They're not Palestinian. Their native countries are not currently occupied. And yet they identify strongly with the Palestinians mm -hmm. on the basis of the past in a certain sense, but also on the basis of the present. And so there you have all these kinds of operations of substitution. In what way is a post-colonial migrant worker, the Palestinian of France, to use right. Frédéric Matouk's term, right, yes. a, a Lebanese theater scholar who uses this beautiful term, 
migrant workers are in a certain sense the Palestinians of France. How? Why? Yeah, you know, they're yeah. not actually colonized. They're not at all subjected to the same kinds of living conditions as Palestinians at that moment. So what is happening at the level of the imagination, mm -hmm. right? And projecting themselves, strongly identifying with another cause. In sort of the most extreme case, perhaps, and I'm thinking from my own area studies background, is China. You think about, you know, Godard, Genet, the romanticization of the Red Guard. And you can see exactly, and you bring it out so beautifully in your book, how complex it is, because on the one hand, you want those kinds of acts of solidarity, but you don't want the acts of appropriation, right? <laughs> so, And you unpack that so well in your book. Thank you. So I try to attend to that because I think that perhaps at that time, right, there was a romanticization of what Rosser calls the cause of the other. At the same time, I'm sure you're familiar with the text that he wrote in the mid-90s during the Algerian Civil War, um, where he was trying to understand what was happening in France during the War of Independence mm -hmm. to people who disidentified with the state. And I think for me, that's a very useful way of thinking about it. Because in fact, with Palestine, something similar is happening, where this identification with Palestinians is also in some sense is a disidentification with the FLN state or with Bourguiba's mm -hmm. Tunisia, right? Because a lot of these yeah. processes of solidarity are also critical of post-colonial Arab regimes at that time. We know that that has continued. Those forms of critique have not gone away. But I agree. I think it's very important at the same time to actually do justice to the complexities of those forms of identification, also yeah. in the ways in which they might be reproducing certain kinds of what I call the colonial cliche in some senses. So I tend to be drawn to the texts that are undermining the, right. uh, or that right. are not romanticizing in that sense, so that are questioning those, which of course is also very much a move of that time, the auto-critique, right? These kind of right. very Marxist ideas of we need to critique our own discourse, our own ideological backgrounds and approaches. But yes, I completely agree with you. I think that trying to unpack all of the politics, good and bad, of those gestures, of those movements. It's true that in the book, I am trying to recuperate or think of a certain kind of politics of displacement that mm -hmm. could actually be productive. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very wary of different kinds of displacements and instrumentalizations coming from not just the right, but really the far right and precisely coming from right. native perspectives. And so that's that work that, that I've been continuing on now. I'm thinking, for example, of Eric Zemmour, right? Oh my God, yeah. Or, yeah, or contemporary figures that are almost explicitly occupying the place of the racialized, the colonized, mm -hmm. when you talk about anti-white racism, right? Yeah. Which is this kind of trope in France as it is here, or kind of alt-right buzzwords, right? The colonization of France, the invasion of France, mm -hmm. and migrants and so on. This is, again, this is not you. No. It feels more new in the U.S., even though it's also not new in the U.S., but I think that for us, it's like 2016 was this revelatory moment when, oh my goodness, <laughs> what is this? Whereas in France, you have it starting in the 1970s with someone like Jean Raspail's book, The mm -hmm. Camp of the Saints, mm -hmm. right, which Steve Bannon and, yeah, exactly. uh, and Marine exactly. Le Pen are, yep. have been touting yep. ever since. I, again, to come back to that moment, so thinking about what changes when we try to understand nativism, not in the context of the like 2015 million people in Europe, oh, this is new, this is all of a sudden, or it's just the Arab Spring. But really going back to that post-colonial period, mm -hmm. which is really where I see, at least in the French context, that this discourse is emerging. And I've been trying to track it back even to what I call the colonial frontier. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that I'm the first person to use that term. Mm -hmm. Tracking back to the colonial mm -hmm. frontier, mm -hmm. to Algeria specifically, and to the settler colony of Algeria specifically. And so here too, I've been trying to think about the settler colonial genealogies of nativism. Right. And I think there's something there around, again, natives, right? That were called natives at the time of conquest after 1492. Right. Well, why don't we talk about your analysis of works of art? which I think gives us exactly 
that kind of material that, as you said a moment ago, really demonstrates how vexed and complex these issues are. And then let's talk about the appropriation of the figure of the native by the right. And then finally, and sort of following the trajectory of your book, let's scale it up to the global. In part one, I'm thinking about two things. This amazing collaboration with Darwish in some of these projects, which I hope you'll talk about. But the line from Genet, something along the lines of, the minute that the Palestinians have a nation state of their own, in other you know, get what they want, essentially, is when I no longer am particularly interested in them, which (laughs) sounds so bizarre. Could you unpack that a little bit and then talk about whichever the artworks you think best evinces this kind of how art can bring out these things? Yeah, well, the Jeunet phrase is one that Edward Said commented at some length in his writings about Jeunet on late style. And I think actually that Darwish, um, Hamoud Darwish, the Palestinian poet, had had conversations with Jeunet around this idea. But maybe I have to say a couple of things about Jean Jeunet first. So Jean Genet was an iconoclastic French writer. He was writing very much autobiographically about his childhood as a foster Mm -hmm. child, very much in marginal circles, let's say, his discovery of petty crime, his homosexuality. That's how he's known in the French corpus as a writer of the kind of demi-monde of French cities, both Paris and the provinces. His writing is incredible. It's hard to describe. He was an extremely unique writer. His language is absolutely spectacular, sublime. I mean, for someone from the kind Mm. of class background he was from. He was a marvel of writing, but he became more and more interested in what Rancière calls the cause of the other and in these causes, right? And specifically, I would say three causes. The Black Panthers in the U.S. Actually, he met the Black Panthers in Paris through the Palestinians. So the Black Panthers and the Palestinians were his two kind of, you could say, foreign causes, Mm -hmm. but also the cause of Algeria and of of post-colonial migrants. In fact, he wrote a play called Les Paravents, the the screens about Mm -hmm. Algeria. It's, you can't call it a pro-Algerian play exactly Mm -hmm. because his writing is all about contradictions and conflict and tensions. And in a way, he satirizes everything. Nothing is sacred for Jeunet. But of course, at the time, because this was during the Algerian War of Independence, it was considered anathema. Like Jean-Marie Le Pen, who founded the Front National after the Algerian War, was campaigning against the play. People would come and throw tomatoes and so on and so forth. So he was, you could say, an activist. He wasn't affiliated to any party or to any particular group, but he was, you could say, a rogue activist for the causes that he believed in. And so it's in that context that he became close to the Palestinians. He was invited to go to the Palestinian bases and camps in Jordan and Lebanon and spent a long time, especially in Jordan, with the Fida'in and wrote about those experiences in his posthumous memoir, Prisoner of Love, Un Captif Amoureux, which is the book that I spend most time talking about. He mm-hmm. also wrote for the Revue d'études palestiniennes, so the French version of the Journal of Palestine Studies, after having been to Beirut immediately after right. the Sabra and Shatila massacres. Mm-hmm. So I believe the first European yeah person to walk through the camps after the massacre Mm. of Palestinian refugees by Falange, fundamentalist Christian Lebanese people, almost under the supervision of the Israeli Defense Forces. So he wrote about that. And so he wrote many beautiful texts about the Palestinians. He also wrote about the Black Panthers, the Soledad Brothers, a lot of stuff on the Black Power Movement in the U.S. And he wrote, actually, interestingly, both about the Palestinians and the Black Panthers in that posthumous memoir, Prisoner of Love. So I want to contextualize what he says about when he says, the day the Palestinians have a state of their own, 
I will no longer be on their side. And what he meant by that, I think, is that he was on the side of the people who were not in power. He mm. was on the side of the oppressed. And it's a facetious mm. way of saying it. And yeah. he was a facetious kind of <laughs> public speaker. Mm. He blurred his traces a lot also. He would sometimes okay. contradict himself kind of on purpose. But I don't think that he said this in the spirit of, I don't want them to mm-hmm. have a state. He was saying this, and he uses this beautiful phrase, settled nations, when he talks about the settled nations that are, in a way, conspiring against Palestine. And this is also maybe in the of migrant camps, because for him too, the Palestinian camps were most foreshadowings of the kind of explosion of yeah. the various different temporary permanent forms of camp living, of incarceration. Yeah. And so, yeah, he was saying this in the spirit of, I am on their side because... They are on the right side of history, so to speak. Yeah. But not that he thought history with a capital H meant anything at okay, all. But that, yeah. yeah, but that he was on their side because they were disempowered okay. and oppressed and colonized. You bring it out well in the book that the idea of a revolutionary spirit, that's what he's in solidarity with. It. And it doesn't really matter who it is, but it's the spirit. But when the spirit becomes then conventionalized, then it no longer exists. I think he yeah. had very particular loves. And yeah. that's why he's his prisoner of love. He loved the Palestinians and he loved the Black mm. Panthers. Yeah. And I think it's because he thought their cause was right. So it was from, of course, in a way, a moral, ethical, political mm-hmm. position. And he said, for me, they are in the right. And I love them because mm-hmm. they are in the right. So let's talk about the artworks that you did. Whichever you think was most interesting to you and most fun. So can I talk about the cover of the book? Yes, please, please. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so happy about the cover of this book. Yeah. So I asked the press, I said, you know, they always do these, you know, yeah, <laughs> they do these polls like, oh, you know, what kind of artwork mm-hmm. do you want? What, you know, what kind of cover are you thinking of? And I said, first of all, I want it to be an archival document of some kind. It could be a still from a film. It, I had a few different examples. The work of Bouchra Khalili, who's a mm-hmm. French Moroccan artist who mm-hmm. I write about at the end of the first chapter, because she revisited this archive of the Palestine committees in the 1970s in a recent work where she makes the connection between the Palestine committees in the 1970s. And I should say Palestine committees, by the way, is a very generic term because there were, there were so many right. Palestine committees, right. but specifically the committees for the support of the Palestinian Revolution, which became the movement of Arab workers in mm-hmm. 1972. So she also worked with this archive as an artist and animated this archive in the context of the ongoing migrant question. So I proposed this image as one of the images, and this image is the logo, the Mouvement des Travailleurs Arabes. It's the logo mm-hmm. of the movement of Arab workers, which was founded in 1972, grew out of, you could say, the committees of support for the Palestinian Revolution, which were founded after Black September in basically September-October of 1970. Black September was the massacre of Palestinian Fedain and refugees by King Hussein's army in Jordan in September of 1970. They were trying to root out the Palestinian resistance that was based in Jordan. And so, interestingly, it's at that moment that so-called Arab Maoists, <laughs> so to use that mm-hmm. term, Maoists, mostly students from North Africa and the Middle East, who got together and were talking with, with representatives of the PLO in Paris and decided decided to form, they were really forming a migrant rights movement that was deploying Palestine as rallying cries, I put it in that chapter. So I wanted to use this image because I interpret this as a drawing of a worker with his fist raised, mm-hmm. right? But you can see that the shape, the outline or the silhouette of this worker mm-hmm. is in the shape of Palestine. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's okay. immediately yeah. evidence. No, yeah. Now it is, totally. So you can mm-hmm. see that it's a very pared down, kind of almost mm-hmm. abstract mm-hmm. Uh, silhouette. And it's also... The figure is kind of shrouded as mm-hmm. if he were wearing camouflage. And it's not drawn in this way, but it evokes the Palestinian kufeya, 
the Palestinian right. scarf, Absolutely. Yeah. which is, of course, a Palestinian garment, but became a kind of revolutionary symbol right. because the Fida'in were wearing it. As, and you see this in a lot of the iconography, especially of this era of the 1960s, 70s, especially after 1968, which was the first kind of victory of Fatah, the, mm-hmm. the Palestinian resistance movement. The Kufeya and the Kalashnikov, I should say, so it's also this very militarized image, become these symbols of the migrant rights movement in France. It's quite remarkable. And you see this also in the first chapter. I have a still from a film that was made with the committees in support of the Palestinian Revolution. So with precursors to the movement of Arab work, this film, which is titled in English, Mm -hmm. that's translated as Mm Self-Reliant. And it's, as you might recognize, the beginning of the title of one of the chapters in Mao's Little Red Book, Self-Reliant and the arduous struggle, I think, is the English translation of that. So it's a Maoist film, you could say. And the still depicts three young men hunched over in conversation in like a very kind of modest apartment in Paris. And they're talking about a worker strike that had occurred shortly before they had this conversation where the Arab workers, the Moroccan, Algerian, Tunisian working at this probably Renault factory, a car factory, demanded to screen a pro-Palestinian film called Palestine, Palestine will Mm, prevail or mm. Palestine will win. And so they're talking about why they wanted to screen a Palestinian film. They're talking here at this point about the autonomy of the migrant workers movement who have their own demands that are not represented by the unions, by the Sijetze and the other unions. So they're talking about they don't feel represented by the unions. So they're having this conversation. And what you can see in the background, you can see a post of a Palestinian oh, right. And in fact, the camera kind of zooms in onto their group. So I chose the still because it's where mm-hmm. you see the poster most. But that kind mm-hmm. of iconography, really characteristic of that time. And this is, of course, the time where the possibility of armed resistance to colonization in Palestine seemed not just possible, but like right. the way forward, Absolutely. right? Like that was that moment yep. when, okay, we're going to be like Algeria. We're going to mm-hmm. get our own nation state. So this moment that mm-hmm. Jeunet, where Jeunet is participating in mm-hmm. helping the Palestinians, okay. is, it's before that yeah. happens. And to come back to Jeunet, he had witnessed Algeria's independence. So to clarify, in a way, Jeunet's politics, it's the politics of where his support is needed. So this iconography I find really fascinating. And then, as I mentioned, Bouchra Khalili, I talk about her work towards the end of this chapter. So she did this really interesting installation and film, which is called The Tempest Society. And she borrows this title from Al-Asifa. Al-Asifa was, Mm -hmm. it means the tempest in Arabic. And Al-Asifa was the theater troupe that was founded by movement of Arab workers with Maoist students who were involved with the Mouvement des Travailleurs Arabes. So they got together because they were theater people and they called it a performance collective because they were against the whole kind of street theater thing. For them, they were actually activists. In French, the expression is they were des militants faisant la comédie. So faire mm. la comédie is to act. It means yeah. literally like making comedy, but mm-hmm. in the sense of right, acting right. and des militants activists acting. So I call them mm-hmm. activists acting. Mm-hmm. And Jaslan is still with us, which is wonderful. And so he appears in his own role. He appears as himself in this film alongside young Greek Athenian citizens of Greece who, are, who live in Athens. So she has these four characters, so three Greek activists for migrant rights today mm-hmm. um, and a kind of veteran of the migrant rights movement in France, she has them through this archive of mostly photographs and a little Super 8 film of mm-hmm. migrant workers basically performing these skits about their condition. And they activate, that's her term, Bushra Khalidi's term, they activate mm-hmm. this archive mm-hmm. of activists acting <laughs> in the context of the current migrant crisis, which I prefer to call the migrant question. But they are making explicit that connection, right, between these struggles for migrant rights in 1970s France and the right. aftermath of decolonization to the contemporary period, right, and 
and this kind of dehistoricized understanding of the so-called migrant crisis. Could you talk about Godard? Because we haven't talked about the American Indian in this text that you have. is amazing. <laughs> Yes. So I started working on Jean-Luc Godard's first Palestine film. So what happened was, this is in the aftermath of the auteur period, right? So Godard is done with being an auteur. This is in the like, you know, pre-1968 moment. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. in the worldwide condemnation of the U.S. war against Vietnam, which of course Godard had already been including in his films, like in La Chinoise and others. And Godard had a film about his relationship to Vietnam and the fact that he couldn't go there. Because he tried to go to Vietnam, but he was denied a visa for some reason. So he made a film about not being able to go to Vietnam. But then he started doing kind of leftist filmmaking with a collective of filmmakers, including Jean-Pierre Gorin, who was a, mm -hmm. a young Maoist that he met. They started working under the name of the Ziga Vertov group, mm -hmm. after the Soviet filmmaker Ziga Vertov. And during this period, they were asked by the PLO to make a film about Vietnam. So it's again this kind of heady moment of anti-colonial solidarity. They get funding from the Arab League, and so they go to mostly Jordan, also Lebanon, to the Palestinian camps and bases to make a film about the Palestinian revolution, which was supposed to be called Hat al-Nasr, Until Victory. Mm. They write a script, and already in that script, they made the comparison between Palestinians and American Indians. They said, basically, what happened to the American Indians cannot happen to the Palestinians. In a way, we can't let it happen, so we're right, going to make this right. film. And of course, what that implies is that American Indians are a thing of the past, right. the kind of erasure of American Indians from their mm -hmm. country, as if they didn't exist. This kind of also romantic relationship to them, right? The heroes or anti-heroes of Western movies and whatnot. So there's that. And it's interesting because what I realized was that there's a kind of Palestinian genealogy, what I ended up calling trans-indigenous identification, mm -hmm. with a nod to Alan Chadwick's work on trans-indigeneity. As we now know, actually, thanks to Godard's film, Our Music, and thanks to to, of course, Mahmoud's writings and poetry, and especially his poem, The Penultimate Speech of the Red Indian to the White Man, which is staged in Godard's 2004 film, Our Music. And Stephen Salaita, of course, has documented right. a lot exactly. of these connections between the Palestinian question and what you could call the Indian question. That's a term that mm -hmm. Mahmoud Mamdani uses in his recent book. So I became really interested in this Palestinian genealogy because it's another way of triangulating this question of indigeneity mm -hmm. in France, actually. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that the book started out as a book about the Palestinian question in France. Mm -hmm. And there could be another book about the Indian question in France. And maybe right. I need to write that book at some point. But there's a fascination in France with the figure of the American Indian. And I try to track that a little bit. When does Godard make this American movie? I think it's called AM or something like that. This oh, yes, yes. So that was a crazy when I yeah. found this film. Absolutely. Yeah, because this is after they've been to Palestine. So Godard, Gorin, mm -hmm. and Armand Marco, who was their cameraman, have spent four, five, six months in Jordan and also in Lebanon. This is in spring and summer. Mm -hmm. They come back to mm -hmm. Paris in summer of 1970. And then Black September happens. Exactly. So yeah. the massacre of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Basically, the first moment since Fatah became this kind of shining beacon of the possibility, right, of decolonization mm -hmm. in Palestine, it's the first of many reversals, the mm -hmm. Palestinian mm -hmm. independence movement or resistance movement. So they're back in Paris and they really don't know what to do. So they have a kind of crisis, which almost disbands the whole Ziga Veritov collective. In a sense, you could see it as the beginning of the end of the collective. At first, they're trying to find funding. So one of the things that they do is they go to the U.S. Yeah. and they give talks and there's a great documentary film that kind of documents their trip yeah. across America yeah. the East Coast to the West Coast and they're showing La Chinoise 
mm-hmm. from 1967. And they're like not pretending at all. So they're saying, you know, we're trying to raise money for this film we're mm-hmm. doing on mm-hmm. Palestine. And it's at this time that they connect with D.A. Penn mm-hmm. Baker and, um, and Richard Leacock, who approach Godard and say, listen, why don't we make a film together? And the film is supposed to be called 1AM, One American Movie. That's Godard's mm-hmm. title. Mm-hmm. And they decide to make this film together. So the very strange thing is I can't find any documentary trace of a character who appears in this film. Hmm. It's an American Indian character played by a white actor. Right, you mentioned that. Yeah, Yeah. and part of the film is an interview with Thomas Hayden and also an interview with Eldridge Cleaver just before he exiled himself to Cuba and then before he went to Algeria. So there's a lot going on. It's kind of a crazy film. Anyway, they never make the film, so they have all this footage. And then Pennebaker basically finished it himself. He just used all the Mm -hmm. rush footage. He edited it, and I think he edited it quite differently than Godard would have edited it. He includes this footage of Godard basically saying, stop filming me. (laughs) And he includes this scene with this quote-unquote Indian dressed all in the kind of like Western Indian garb who is playing on a tape deck the interview with Hayden and commenting on it. It's a very crazy scene, but they also actually dress up themselves as Indians in that film. So there's this kind of like really weird red face stuff going on. So that's that kind of colonial cliche that I'm talking about, right? I was just trying to get the dates right because this is exactly the occupation of Alcatraz between 69 and 71. Of course, I mean, there are these militant American Indians taking over Alcatraz and they don't yeah. go out there and try to <laughs> as far as I know I, but I you know I you know I did spend a lot of time with this like huge biography that mm-hmm. Antoine Debeck did of Godard which is mm-hmm. extremely exhaustive he went to all the archives that exist and I did not see anything about that oh, but wow. clearly they're aware of that you know clearly that's part of this kind of obsession and then you have Valdest and Valdest you have a quote-unquote American Indian who's actually a white actor Alan Midget yeah. who actually he's not in red face he's like painting himself with technicolor hues <laughs> so of it's, course of course yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's strangely he looks more like he's in a kind of karate kid getup, but yeah. but he's the kind of like passive Indian right so I try to track all these different figures in these films mostly in contrast with Notre Musique in, in yeah. our music, so the mm-hmm. 2004 film Our Music, it's very different because, first of all, three indigenous actors, including a very well-known one, is in Star Trek. George Aguilar, yeah. he's probably mm-hmm. one of the most famous American Indian actors. So there's that. And of course, in the current context, and maybe mm-hmm. not surprising that in 2004, he felt like he would need to do that as opposed to have red-faced actors. But I think it's not just that. Because I think what happened at that point is Elias Sanba, mm-hmm. who was their impresario in the Middle East when they were going to shoot Jusqu'à la Victoire in Jordan, at this point, a dear friend of Godard's introduced him to Mahmoud Darwish and said, you need to include him in this film, in our music. And interestingly, Elias Sambar apparently is also the person who asked Darwish to write this mm-hmm. poem or suggested it based on Duan's chief uh, Seattle's address to, to the governor of an organized territory of Washington, which is the basis for this beautiful poem that Mahmoud Darwish wrote on the occasion of the quincentennial of the discovery of the Americas, quote unquote, yeah. and of the expulsion of Jews from Spain. So I've never like given a talk about this chapter. I've never tried to do this before. So it's actually the first time. I mean, aside from just in conversation with friends, but I think I was trying to track these kind of twin figures of mm-hmm. the Palestinian mm-hmm. and the American Indian in Godard's films to tease out those politics, right? And yeah. also to trouble the romanticization of one revolution over another. That's the past. Thinking a little bit of about the politics of identification or of solidarity yeah. that are yeah. at work there. And yeah. I think what happens with Godal's later work is that he's no longer trying to be a revolutionary. At that point, he's giving images and sound to people in a way. And he's amplifying these voices. Literally, right. you hear these voices of the indigenous characters just emerging over the soundtrack. 
Mm, how interesting. Wow. They, it's as if you hear almost only them. So let's transition to the alt-right, or I guess whatever you would call it in France, yeah. this yeah. new appropriation of the idea of the native. Yeah. So what I want to do now actually is track this obsession with the figure of the American Indian in colonial discourse, and just let's say even in French literature and art, because mm-hmm. it's all over the place, mm-hmm. right? From the novel Savage, or even right. from Montaigne's De by the Cannibals, to the present. And weirdly, to the extreme present, because again, as part of this research, Research. For example, I found out that Jean Raspail, who is the author of The Camp of the Saints, which is yeah. touted by yeah. Steve Bannon and Marine Le Pen as prophetic, right? published in 1973. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of political dystopia of a France that is being invaded by one million Indians. And these are Indians from India. <laughs> but that's the term that's used to this day in France. The term most commonly used in France for indigenous Americans or American Indians is mm-hmm. Indian d'Amérique, mm-hmm. so Indians from America, or just Indian Indians. And then Paul Rouge? So, okay, yeah. what I discovered as I was working on Jean Raspail's work was that the first thing he published after he published The Camp of the Saints was a text called Journal Peau Rouge, mm-hmm. so Redskin Diary, literally. Mm-hmm or Redskin Journal, which indeed is nonfiction because it's a kind of edited version of his account of the four months that he spent in the United States, basically looking for, and this is how he puts it explicitly, looking for the kind of mythic figure of the Indians. He alternates between the term peau rouge, redskin, and Indian. He uses them both. For him, the term redskin is positive in the sense that he's talking about that original primitive, mm-hmm. like really, he's yeah. talking about really like a primitive yeah. kind of figure. Like, mm-hmm. So the more authentic, quote unquote, he finds them, the more they are Redskins. He narrates really tragic conditions in many ways. And sometimes there's mm-hmm. some empathy or some pity, perhaps. Pity is a better word. But for the most part, there's also a lot of contempt and disdain and disgust. And there are even places where he seems to be talking about you know, in these abject conditions of reservations, where he sees people who are drunk and basically completely unconscious. He narrates really tragic circumstances, but in this really disdainful prose, where he's making the connection weirdly between these reservations and then the French banlieue. So it's very strange because he says it almost explicitly this desire for this kind of mythic figure of the redskin. And in those moments, I see a desire for indigeneity, as if he were thinking, well, how can we retrieve this ourselves in France? Mm -hmm. Because he'll talk about the churches and basically all the French traditions that are being lost as if they were these kind of indigenous aspects of French culture that were disappearing in this kind of decadent modernity and Mm -hmm. in the face of the colonization of France by immigrants. So it's like a lot of the alt-right stuff conceptually. You can't really make any logical sense of it but you have these really catalyzing affects you can track. And this is where I think the work of literary analysis actually is Mm -hmm. really important because how do you understand these discourses? They actually don't really make sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying this having spent a lot of time reading people like Jean Raspail or Renaud Camus, Mm -hmm. the writer who has become an advocate of what he calls the Great Replacement, which, by the way, is a term that he models after a settler colonial historical moment, which is the great upheaval, the le grand uh, dérangement, whereby Acadians were replaced by British settlers. So mm-hmm. the le grand dérangement in what was known as New France, what's now, I guess, Quebec or parts of Canada, that is his model for wow. the great replacement of French people by immigrants, oh my God. which is telling, oh, yes. almost like, well, you're telling me this? Like, this makes it so obvious that you're modeling this that's after, like, incredible. colonial history and, yeah. and settlement. And so that's what I meant earlier when I was talking about the sort of settler colonial genealogies, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. if we think of settler colonialism as a project of replacement, actually, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Patrick Wolfe and others have talked about settler colonialism precisely as a project of replacement, displacement, 
of course, ethnic cleansing and genocide. And so the fact that he would be talking about one settler population, which of course has already displaced the indigenous population, mm -hmm. being replaced by another settler population as his model for the mm -hmm. replacement of native indigenous French people, wow. autochthonous yeah. French people, all these terms come up in this discourse by the new colonizers, basically, uh, the new invaders. But again, as you say, it's so irrational because <laughs> you identify with the people you've annihilated. That you can become somehow connected into this uh, imaginary and somehow it works. I think it taps mm -hmm. into fears which are related to globalization, mm -hmm. which are related to multiculturalism that's completely related to neoliberalism and, and mm -hmm. global trade and so on and so forth, right? The disappearance of jobs, access to resources, which are sparser and sparser because there's fewer of them mm -hmm. to hand out. And mm -hmm. so it taps into those fears at a very basic level. And so the fear of being replaced, which I wouldn't hazard a psychoanalytic interpretation of this, but again, if you go to the colonial archives, or if you think of Ranajit Guha's idea of the settler not being at home in the colony, there's something really uncanny. Mm -hmm. and Heimlich, mm -hmm. you know, about settlement itself in a certain sense. And we know, of course, how cololonized territories were settled. They were settled by the poorest, most marginal, exactly. sometimes exactly. criminal surplus populations. Absolutely. So there is that fear inbuilt. I don't want to narrate this in psychological terms, but, but I do think that there's a way we can understand how discourses have worked. Like, how is it that these discourses that don't actually make sense when you read them work? It's because they offer a solution. So it's not the fault of globalization and neoliberalism that you don't have a job. It's because of these mm -hmm. people at the gates. Mm -hmm. So it just taps into these very primal kind of ways of thinking about threats to one's own well-being. So is this discourse still thriving in France as we speak? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I finished the book with an epilogue when I submitted the final version. It was still very fresh from June 13, 2020, when there were demonstrations, as there have been in France for decades, against police brutality and racist violence and systemic racism. On this particular occasion, there were demonstrations throughout France, and they were called for by the Comité uh, Verité, Justice et Verité pour Adama Traoré, so the Adama Traoré Committee for Justice and Truth. Mm -hmm. Adama Traoré was killed in a police interpolation in July 2016 in circumstances very close to, for example, the murder of George Floyd. So he was most likely asphyxiated in a police van. And so since then, there have been many protests, a groundswell of movements against police violence. Again, this is not new. This does not date to 2016. You can go back to 2005. You can go back yep. to 1995. You can go back to 1982 and so on. But there was one incident that really speaks to what you're asking, to the contemporary nature of this in Paris at the Place de la République. This is like during lockdown. So the protest was supposed to be a march, but they were confined to their starting place, which is the Place de la République, coming back mm -hmm. to that earlier question, right, about yeah. the importance of the kind of symbols of the French Republic. This is, first of all, this is in the 10th, 11th arrondissement districts of France, a historically working class neighborhood, historically also migrant neighborhood, mm -hmm. where some of the Algerian war played out in Paris, right. a very significant part of Paris, and happens to have this giant statue of Marianne, Marianne, who represents the French Republic. She's this kind of legendary figure that's famously represented in la Croix painting as a marching figure with a flag. So these protesters are there. They have Black Lives Matter slogans and a bunch mm. of other kind of posters, of course, because at this point, the anti-racist struggle in France is very much in conversation with Black Lives Matter. And at some point, the protesters notice that there's something going on the roof of one of these buildings that surround the square, mm -hmm. this typical Haussmannian Parisian building, probably, you know, six floors high. And there are people up on the roof and they're putting a huge banner on the roof. And this huge banner says, mm, justice oh for God. the victims of anti-white racism. Yeah. And then it has hashtag white lives matter. Okay. So 
obviously the crowd starts booing them, like、mm-hmm. they're filming,、mm-hmm. they're booing them.、Mm-hmm. The people who were up on the roof, they could have been one of many different far right nativist organizations, but it happened to be one of the most salient ones in France in the last few years called Generation Identitaire, Generation Identity.、Mm-hmm. So they actually they have international chapters and they go by Generation Identity. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. So it turns out that there's like maybe six to eight of them. They've put this banner up. So the crowd is chanting, people who live in the building, who obviously have been Looking at the demonstration, start to go out onto the little balconies、wow. and they start ripping it down.、Mm-hmm. People are like at this point also going up, like neighbors are going up trying to rip it down. You can't get very far. And then at some point, someone starts climbing up the building on the outside, on the facade. A guy dressed in black, like I guess he has some gear, but he's not attached to anything and he's climbing up. He climbs up there and he takes it down. <laughs> and so the crowd is cheering. Turns out this guy calls himself Acrobat Nafkat, which is Acrobat 94. 94 is one of the small around Paris. In One of the banlieues.、Mm-hmm. So Acrobat Nefket, he takes it down, and so all of this is being filmed. Of course, then it's part of the media reporting on it, and、mm-hmm. there's this huge hullabaloo around it. So this is 2020. Generation Identitaire is one of many groups. They've done a lot of stuff. They, for example, traveled to Italy, backpacked to Italy to intercept migrants and stop them from coming to France. They do a lot of very media savvy stuff, and they've actually they have international chapters, but they've actually been somehow blacklisted in France. Their activities are currently suspended, or at least not、mm-hmm. considered legal in France. But that's not saying that much because there there are other groups operational. So yes, this、mm-hmm. is very current, and I want to come back to their name, Generation Identity. Because that's another sign, or of what I'm interpreting as this kind of appropriation, recuperation of anti-racism activism. Because they're taking this term identity, which of course has become extremely important, right, in anti-racist struggles, especially in the U.S., but also in France. And they take this term identity, and they basically says, yes, we care about identity. Basically, we care about white identity.、Mm-hmm. White lives matter. And you know, we see this kind of discourse in the U.S. as well. But in the、yeah. French context,、mm-hmm. it's very marked because in the French context, it's again this republican context. In an egalitarian society, people's individual identity should not matter, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's been part of what anti-racist activists have been working against, trying to undermine. And that's part of the original point of the right to difference.、Mm-hmm. You should be able to have various identities and still be French, regardless of your race, gender, ethnicity, and so on and so forth. So there again, they're cooperating this. Buzzword, you could say, almost of anti-racism,、mm-hmm. and they're saying, "Yeah, well, we have an identity too." <laughs> right, and it comes back to the idea of place, right? That you express sympathy with these poor immigrants because they don't belong here, <laughs> and they'd be much happier back wherever.、Yeah. So everybody can be native in their own place, and everything would it's wind the clock back to pre nineteen. Pre fourteen ninety two, you know. Right, right, exactly. So that's what I try to track in the introduction more carefully: is this emergence in the new right, which is usually cast as a kind of post nineteen sixty eight, as in post May sixty eight. But I'm trying、mm-hmm. to dial that back and say it's actually post nineteen sixty two. The new right, this emergent anti immigrant discourse, which predates even the kind of oil crises of the early seventies. In a way, it's part of what Todd Shepard calls the invention of decolonization.、Mm-hmm. It's like、mm-hmm. we're going to separate now. It's Over, we're not going to mix because yep. Yep. we don't want you to come here. So it's reproducing the sort of apartheid of colonial society, but on a global scale.、Yeah. And so Alain de Benoit is one of the major、mm. theorists who has talked about reciprocal decolonization. Exactly. We left Algeria,、yeah. now you should leave France. You know, it's again completely contradictory because he'll cite someone like.
like Arthur de Gobineau, Gobineau who wrote mm -hmm. the essay Inequality of the Human Races. And he says, actually, he's talking about the diversity of the human races. Literally, exactly. he says it should have been called the diversity of the human races because he celebrates difference, but also sovereignty. <laughs> so it's, again, all these terms of decolonization, of anti-racism that are being exactly. just picked up and made to mean the opposite of what they've always meant within an anti-colonial, anti-racist practice. Do you have any predictions for the future? I don't think it's getting better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole election of Donald Trump, to me, was such a rebuttal of all the progress we thought we had made. And it's tapping into such a deep base of resentment and exactly fear. And again, they're very savvy. And I think, go back to Newt Gingrich, he yeah. was a master of language, mm -hmm. twisting language so that you couldn't have a place to stand because it was automatically appropriated. And this is another thing I love so much about your book is you talk about the plasticity of all this discourse and the way yeah. it can be. On the other hand, we have to end with art because the art and the humanities maybe can help us, if not make sense of things, at least excavate and lay before us exactly the complexities of these operations. So this has been wonderful talking to you again after all these years, but most importantly, over this marvelous book. Thank you so much, David. It's such a pleasure to be on the show in such good company. So I'm really pleased we had this time <laughs> to talk about this work. And there are so many connections with the U.S. context, right? We could have a whole other hour talking about in a way how this plays out in the U.S. because it's interesting, the temporality of it is different. Mm -hmm. it's the, we mm -hmm. never decolonize. There was never something we call decolonization here. So oh. how do these kind of appropriations of indigeneity, if you want to use that term, play out in that long time frame, which doesn't have the same kind of demarcations? Right. But, yeah. Well, that means you have to come back. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's intentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.